Well, hi, listeners. We're back with another episode of Understand South Carolina. This week, we're going to talk about what's shaping up to be the most expensive political race in South Carolina history. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. Today, we're joined by Post and Courier political reporter Jamie Lovegrove, who has been following this race really from the start. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump right into it. So today we're talking about the race between Lindsey Graham, the incumbent, and Jamie Harrison. You had an update on this story this week that really did very well online. It was one of our top performers just days and days in a row. So obviously there's interest in this race. Can you just start out by telling us, I think a lot of us know who Lindsey Graham is, but who is Jamie Harrison for those who may not know? Yeah, so Jamie Harrison is a former chairman of the South Carolina Democratic Party. Uh, He was born and raised in Orangeburg. He worked for Jim Clyburn, uh, the longtime Democratic congressman in South Carolina, uh, in Washington, uh, and then was briefly a, a lobbyist for a little bit, and then moved back to South Carolina, ran the state party here. The only uh, sort of office he has kind of run for before was chairman of the DNC, which is not really a typical election because it's all elected by party uh, insiders, party members. Uh, he dropped out of that in 2017 when Tom Perez won, but he did become an associate chairman of the DNC. So he's been with the DNC for the last few years. So he is very, uh, he has a political background. He has a ton of political connections. He knows how races are run, uh, how successful campaigns are built. And so that has been sort of one of the unique advantages he's had as a candidate compared to some of the typical candidates you, you might see running for their first political office. And of course, we know Senator Lindsey Graham, but just to familiarize ourselves a little bit with his position right now, how long has he been in the Senate? Where is his reputation right now nationally? And then if we get more specific in in South Carolina, too. It's changed a lot. He was first elected to the Senate in 2002. He had previously served in the U.S. House from 1995 until 2002, uh, and then moved over to the Senate, uh, replacing John Thurmond, uh, who had, of course, been there for many decades. And he, for a long time in his Senate career, was viewed as as a moderate compromiser to the extent that it severely uh, imperiled his reputation with the right in his party, with conservative activists. You know, he supported particularly immigration reform. Uh, That was something that uh, really ignited a lot of ire from conservatives, was that he was part of the Gang of Eight that was working on sort of a moderate immigration plan with Democrats. He voted for... Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, two of President Obama's Supreme Court nominees, uh, that really angered a lot of, uh, of of Republican voters. For a long time, he was viewed with some interest from, from Democrats as someone who could work well with them and someone who would push back against sort of the more fire-breathing elements of the Republican Party, but he was viewed with a lot of skepticism by the right to the, to the extent that he had... Pretty diff- he was expected to have a pretty difficult primary challenge in 2014. He 
ended up being able to win that one pretty easily because he won over a lot of the the most threatening potential challengers. You know, this is ancient history now a little bit, but there was talk at, at one point that Mick Mulvaney, who we now all know as the former White House Chief of Staff, was going to run against Lindsey Graham in 2014. Lindsey ended up becoming good friends with Mulvaney, helped him get good committee placements in the House, and so he didn't end up running. That was just an example of of one of the types of folks who were looking to challenge him. He ended up facing six pretty little-known challengers and beating them pretty handily. But all of that is just to say that his reputation over the last three years or so has really uh, taken a dramatic shift. He, of course, was very, very critical of President Trump during the 2016 campaign. He ran for president briefly himself on a very hawkish military platform. Uh, he is he is known for being quite supportive of military interventions. He lost very easily, very quickly. Um, Donald Trump won. He was critical of Trump throughout the 2016 campaign. He didn't vote for Trump in the general election. He voted for Evan McMullen, uh, who's name he now often gets wrong. Um, and, but over the last couple of years, he has become one of Trump's closest allies in Congress. He is one of his most consistent and reliable defenders uh, against criticisms from Democrats. And as a result, he has generated a new level of animosity from the left, you know, from folks who used to view him as a as a moderate compromiser. You know, he is now viewed as someone who is just going to toe the party line and is just going to support Trump. You know, that's a long way of saying that his his reputation changes year by year, but that is that is the current state of how he's viewed both nationally and uh, in South Carolina. So I guess, you know, the big update was that um, the Harrison campaign has actually outraised the Graham campaign. Right. And, you know, I guess this, this leads to the most obvious question is, you know, how how competitive really is this race? I, I think South Carolina is seen as a really, really safe Republican state. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's surprising, certainly, at least to see the Democratic challenger raising as much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, in, in, in the backdrop of all of this, I, I wonder, I, I think I'm thinking about this race maybe a little bit differently in, in light of of. Joe Cunningham's surprise victory, just for for context, uh, that's the the first district down down here in in Charleston, the Low Country of of South Carolina, long held by uh, Mark Sanford, considered a, a pretty safe Republican district, and then in the last in in 2018, kind of out of nowhere, Joe Cunningham, a moderate Democrat, um, surprised everyone with with a victory there. So, and and I think that that race was was not on a lot of people's radar, and then it, it kind of surprised a lot of people. So how, how competitive really is this race, do we think? Yeah, I mean, that is the big question. So, you know, the, the Cunningham victory that you point to is exactly the type of, of upset that Democrats are, are hoping to, to replicate on a much larger scale here in the Senate race. Uh, you know, that is, it is a similar scale of, of upset in terms of how Republican Joe Cunningham's seat once was. Trump won the first congressional district by, you know, 12, 13 points. He won the state of South Carolina um, by uh, about 14 points. So it's maybe, I think maybe 15, close to 15. 
So it's a slightly bigger margin, and the bigger issue is that it's a statewide race. It's a, it's a lot easier to flip a, a House district than it is to flip an entire state. You know, and so, yes, it is still continued to be viewed by uh, nonpartisan election analysts uh, that are pretty well trusted. The Cook Political Report being the uh, the foremost among them as a, as a safe Republican seat, which is, you know, less competitive than uh, I think about 13 races fall between either safe Democratic or safe Republican. So the other sort of categories we look at are, are seats that are are likely Democratic or likely Republican, uh, seats that are kind of leaning Democratic, leaning Republican, more close seats. And then we have toss-up seats, you know, races that are truly too close to call. That's like the Cunningham race, for example. This has still been viewed as a safe Republican hold. You know, the way that you change that situation is by... Things like outraising the incumbent. Uh, those are the types of, of moves that do get the attention of people who rate how competitive these races are. And, you know, as I said, because of the fact that, that Jamie Harrison has worked in politics for a long time, he knows the nuts and bolts of how campaigns work, uh, of how races are won, and he knows the importance of fundraising. Uh, and he's also a pretty well-connected guy, uh, you know, because of the fact that he's worked in democratic politics for a long time. He he knows uh, some of the biggest donors. He knows how to to kind of build an operation. So he is running the type of race you would need to run to, to make it competitive. You know, I think the question that a lot of folks still have is whether the sort of underlying political dynamics in South Carolina, the foundations of the state have really shifted and you know other than uh races like that that cunningham race you know outside of the low country which has shifted considerably over the last few years uh i think we have not seen as much evidence of that around the rest of the state and so the question is whether harrison can can overcome that, whether he can turn out voters who do not normally show up in south carolina whether he can potentially win over some some moderate Republicans uh, who may be dissatisfied with Senator Graham. That that's the big question that we're looking to see over the next few months. Let me ask: um, Have we seen have we seen any like polling on this race? Because um, I know that was one of the frustrating things about the Cunningham race. When a seat is considered safe, you usually don't put you know resources into polling it, uh, especially these like local and state elections, which are a lot harder to poll than national ones. Have we have we like seen much polling or or not? Not a ton, or at least not that would be considered super reliable. Um, yeah. We've seen polling. Uh, you know, the Harrison campaign has released their own polls. We've seen yeah. you know uh, sort and of that, outside and that's pretty, groups. That's pretty normal. It can't campaigns yeah, no, always totally. put out polls that suggest they're yeah. doing well. Yes, uh, and so they've put out polls that show it as close as uh you know four four percent. Uh, race, um, you know, which which would be uh, uh, certainly make things interesting. You know, it's just we haven't had a really reliable, uh, neutral, well-known pollster come in here and uh, and take stock of it. And, and you're right, it is harder to do that, especially when 
you know, as I say, there's there's a there's a dozen races that are already viewed as very competitive. You know, I mean, there there's races in Maine, in North Carolina, uh, in states that are viewed as neck and neck. So, you know, polling costs a lot of money, uh, and so it's understandable why pollsters would want to use that money in the most competitive states. But you are right that it's hard to kind of change how people view South Carolina without um, sort of numbers to to indicate where we are. So we said at the top of this episode that this is shaping up to be South Carolina's most expensive race. So mm-hmm. how much money are we talking right now? And in terms of um, Harrison outraising Graham in this last quarter, how much was that difference? Uh, what was the record before that? So it was funny the way that this kind of transpired on, you know, the filing deadline was last Wednesday. Uh, I heard from someone in Senator Graham's campaign uh, shortly before they were getting ready to file their report. And they said, we broke the record easily. Uh, They had actually, you know, Senator Graham set the South Carolina record at the end of 2019 for a single quarter, a quarter, you know, being three months uh, at 3.9 million. Uh, He came in at the, End of this past quarter, which was January, February, March, he had raised $5.6 million over those three months. So he had totally obliterated his record. It looked like he was going to have another strong quarter and and that he was going to continue to ride the momentum that he has built. Um, And then, you know, about 20 minutes later, we heard that Jamie Harrison had actually, uh, you know, raised $7.36 million considerably more, almost $2 million more than Senator Graham had raised. It was the first time in Senator Graham's career that he had been outraised uh, by a Democratic opponent. First time in this race, certainly. Uh, You know, Jamie Harrison had been raising big numbers, but he had consistently, quarter after quarter, just narrowly gotten outraised by Senator Graham. Uh, And... You know, this race, when we talk about the level of competitiveness, you know, two of the races that are raising that are bringing in the most amount of money are this race and the Kentucky race. Another race that is not viewed necessarily as particularly competitive, but the incumbent in Kentucky is Mitch McConnell, another very, very well-known Republican, generates a lot of animosity from Democratic donors. Uh, You know, that tends to be the type of of uh, personality that draws a lot of money on both sides of the aisles, sort of similar to what we saw in 2018 with Ted Cruz in Texas. You know, personalities that are very polarizing get people to open their wallets. It has been pretty striking. The state record uh, before this race was 2004, the Inez Tenenbaum, Jim DeMint race, uh, which was to replace Fritz Hollings, who was retiring at the time, longtime Democratic senator. Jim DeMint, over the course of that race, he won the race, uh, raised $9.6 million for the entire race. So that's, you know, just over $2 million more than than Jamie Harrison raised over the last three months. That's what Jim DeMint raised for the entire race. Inez Tenenbaum in that race raised $6.2 million. So that's less than Jamie Harrison raised for the last three months, she raised that for the entire race. And at the time, those were seen as really big numbers. And they were really big numbers. Uh, it just underscores how much money is pouring into this race. It's going to beat any South Carolina race by, uh, by you know, 
several multiples by the end of by the time this is all said and done and you're going to see a lot of of Lindsey Graham and Jamie Harrison ads on your TV. We're already starting to see some of those Jamie Harrison ads uh, <laughs> over the last few weeks. <laughs> yeah. Those those numbers just really blow the others out of the the water that is it's just really kind of do. it's crazy. In terms of the the buzz too around it, this is definitely one that, that even like you said the analysts aren't necessarily saying this is a competitive race. It's definitely getting attention. And it was interesting this week when that news came out, uh, mm. there were some pretty big names weighing in on on Twitter. I know Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. tweeted about it. And then mm-hmm. I believe uh, Nikki Haley quote tweeted Hillary Clinton's tweet and gave her own commentary. So what have you been seeing from other big names in the political world about this? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting uh, that, you know, again, going back to the fact that Jamie is is well-connected in in politics, you know, he knows Hillary Clinton. Uh, You know, these are the types of people who have been following his race from the beginning. So to to get her to weigh in, obviously, that'll probably provide another fundraising boost for him. At the same time, you know, uh, that was probably the one piece of, of news from last week that the Graham campaign was was happy about <laughs> they probably were going to tie Jamie Harrison to, to Hillary Clinton uh, whether or not she weighed in so uh, the fact that she did will only bolster that that connection they will surely draw um, oh, yeah. you know the way the way that these races always go right is that on both sides you're always trying to tie your opponent to the most the most unpopular figure in your part in their party at least as is viewed by the other side. So, you know, probably for, for by Republicans, the least popular Democrats are Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of talk about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Hillary Clinton in this race. On the Republican side, you know, of course, uh, Trump is basically the one figure uh, Democrat. And, and, and there's, I don't think uh, Lindsey Graham would in any way dispute the fact that he has been uh, very closely tied to Trump. So we'll see a lot of sort of campaigning by proxy over the next few uh, weeks. But it was interesting, as you say, to see Nikki Haley come in there and defend him, Tim Scott defending him, William Timmons, uh, congressman from the upstate. So that the wagons are, are circling around uh, Lindsay a little bit and showing uh, that, that, you know, Republicans are, uh, are recognizing the fact that this is becoming a, a legitimate race and that they're going to need to uh, to defend it. Yeah, and I've, got, I've got two things to say to that. Um, yeah. the, the first is that I've I've been calling Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer Nanchuck, and I think that should catch on. <laughs> I want everyone to call them that. Um, and then the second thing is that you know Hillary Clinton and Nikki Haley beefing on Twitter over a <laughs> South Carolina Senate race is a huge 2020 mood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No. Twitter is is where these campaigns seem to run after times, and so uh, you know it was it was interesting to see her way in. Yeah. Now let me let me ask a kind of random question. Um, how did the the timing of of these uh, this fundraising? How did it relate to coronavirus? Was this money that was raised before? It's a good coronavirus, question. or so. Uh, so it was January through March. So the last you know month of it was certainly while we were at least beginning to recognize the threat of the virus. Uh, certainly by the middle of March, I think we were all 
uh, pretty well aware that that life was going to be changing significantly. Um, Lindsay's campaign actually did say, and I will note that they said this before we even knew what Jamie's totals were. Um, so it's not necessarily they were making an excuse for the fact that they were lower, but they did say that that he had stopped, he, he had halted his fundraising operation for the last two weeks of March when the virus was starting to get intense. Obviously, he was not holding fundraisers, but he wasn't even soliciting money. Um, so, you know, that could have have diminished his figures. He also was not holding fundraisers, they said, uh, during the Senate impeachment trial uh, of Trump, which, if you can believe it, was in fact earlier this year. It does feel like ancient history <laughs> right now. Um, but that was happening, and so he wasn't holding fundraisers during that, so that could have diminished his his numbers as well. Um, but the bigger point is that neither of them bore the brunt of the virus in, in that I think I would not be surprised if both of them see substantially lower fundraising in the second quarter of 2020, uh, because campaigns all over the country, at least all the campaigns I've talked to, all the consultants I've talked to have said that fundraising has really dried up. Um, obviously when people are, uh, worried about, you know, putting food on the table for their families, they are much less likely to, uh, be give, doling out money to, to political candidates. Uh, you know, maybe this race will, given the trend, the trajectory that it's, it's been on so far, maybe this race will defy that trend and, and we'll get, they will both continue to raise huge amounts of money, uh, just because of, how much enthusiasm this race is is ginning up on both sides, but but to answer your question, you know, yeah, it did have some impact towards the end, uh, but we may see more of an impact in in the second quarter of fundraising. Let Let's say we do see a bigger impact in this next quarter. Given how much both of them have already raised up to this point, have mm. they raised enough that even if they see a big hit to fundraising, this is still likely going to be the most expensive? campaign yes okay yep yep that's a good that's a good point i mean frankly they both have more than enough money at this point to uh run a very intense organization with a, a ton of ads um so yes at this point they're just continuing to build on that uh and you know what we'll, we'll we'll see what what happens there and obviously fundraising is just one element of this you know it's it it may become even more important to have a lot of money uh, over the next few months because, you know, so much of this campaign is going to be run on TV, on digital, um, because you can't be getting out there and, and shaking hands and meeting people. Uh, so you need to be investing in, in other ways to, uh, to reach voters. Uh, and so money is going to help both of them with that. We've obviously been talking about Lindsey Graham's Democratic uh, opponent. Does he have... Republican challengers and and if he does do they pose an actual threat at this point no uh he, yes to the first question no to the second uh he does have three uh Republicans on the ballot with him on June 9th which is when our primaries are still happening um uh and uh their names are Joe Reynolds uh Duke Buckner and Michael LaPierre uh, none of them have any serious amounts of money 
you know, I mean, tiny, tiny, tiny fractions of what both Jamie Harrison and Lindsey Graham have. Uh, and none of them have, you know, run successfully for office before. Uh, and I think more importantly, the reason why they don't really have a chance compared to Lindsey Graham primary challengers in the past is that there is no real um, animosity towards Graham right now on the right, at least in not, not in any large numbers. In fact, I think what is striking, the one thing that is notable about his his Republican primary challengers is at least one of them, uh, Joe Reynolds, is is kind of running from Lindsay's uh, left. That's something we have never, never seen from a Lindsey Graham primary challenger. We've never, they, they almost always are saying, you are not conservative enough. You voted for Obama Supreme Court nominees. You voted for immigration compromise. You know, I'm going to be the true Republican. Uh, this time we have someone saying, you know, this guy is is uh, too, um, uh, you know, subservient to, to President Trump, uh, that he's not putting, you know, the interests of South Carolina first, uh, similar to the messaging that Jamie Harrison has been putting out. Uh, and so that is a, a certainly a shift in dynamics. But, you know, I wrote way back at the beginning of, of 2019 um, about the fact that, that Lindsay's uh, it was pretty clear even back then, even before we knew who was going to run, that Lindsey Graham's uh, challenge was going to be coming from the Democrats this time, not from the Republicans. In 2014, he was not very worried about a Democratic challenge. He was very worried about losing a Republican primary, um, which had happened to a couple of his colleagues at that point. Because you had to remember in 2010, there was the Tea Party wave. In 2012, there were still incumbents losing. People were worried about losing Republican primaries from the right. Um, now there is a lot less concern about that, but there is more concern uh, about the possibility of losing to a Democrat. Can I ask a really random question? Um, yeah. Why, why is this primary, why wasn't it on the same day as the presidential primary? It's just the way that South Carolina has done it. Uh, because I think because of the fact that we have a very early presidential primary, because we want to be the first in the South, um, you know, it may be that we uh, don't want to put our statewide primaries that early. You know, typically our statewide primaries, whether it's in a presidential year or not, are in the middle of the summer. Um, so maybe that we kind of want to keep it fairly consistent with that. Um, but uh, yeah, it is. It, it's a strange quirk. Um, but uh, it does make the presidential primary go a little smoother because it means that the only race that the election officials have to have to tally have to count the results for is is the presidential race uh and then we come in and do all these other offices later in the year are there are there any more challengers from the left um like does does harrison face any primary challengers so he did at the beginning of the race um and she dropped out a couple months ago her name was gloria tanubu uh she was a bit of a perennial candidate in south carolina she's run for congress multiple times uh, out in the 7th Congressional District, Tom Rice's district. Uh, she uh, ha was a was a running mate in the governor's race last year. She was Phil Noble's running mate in the Democratic primary for governor. Um, so she was involved in that race. She'd actually served in the Georgia State House, um, like in, in the early, I think like 2010, 2011, um, and then moved back to South Carolina and started running for offices here. 
Um, anyway, she was running. Uh, she was uh, in huge amounts of debt from her previous races. She uh, just did not have any of the connections that, that Jamie Harrison did. You know, Jamie, speaking of Chuck Schumer, we were mentioning Chuck Schumer earlier. Jamie went up to D.C. fairly early in this race, sat down with Chuck Schumer, uh, got the sort of Democratic establishment firmly on his side, the, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, which typically avoids getting involved in primaries, uh, endorsed Jamie Harrison, even when he had another candidate running in, in the primary in Gloria Tanubu. So I think it was pretty clear that the writing was on the wall uh, and that he was going to be the nominee. And so she dropped out and endorsed him uh, a couple of a couple of months ago. And he is now the presumptive uh, Democratic nominee. There have been some other pretty prominent Democrats, right, including in South Carolina, that have also thrown their support behind Harrison, right? That yep. we've have, We have Clyburn, of course. Is there anyone else? Yeah, I mean, basically everyone. <laughs> um, I mean, you name a Democrat, uh, and they are they're going to be supporting Jamie Harrison um, in November. You know, the extent to which they may go out of their way to to help him may vary. Um, you know, Clyburn, who is of course not only a longtime friend of Jamie's, but a mentor of his, and um, you know, who who uh, you know used to be his boss. Um, I expect he will be as helpful as he can possibly be. Um, you know, Joe Cunningham has his own race to focus on, so I would uh, not expect him to be particularly uh, involved. Um, but certainly, you know, Governor Riley and Governor uh, Hodges, you know, the two former Democratic, gov- the, the only two living former Democratic governors in South Carolina, they've been very supportive. Inez Tenenbaum, who we brought up, you know, former superintendent, one of the last... Democratic elected statewide elected officials in South Carolina and a 2004 Senate candidate. She's supporting him. The uh, the entire Democratic establishment uh, is is behind him. Uh, and so, you know, as 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 effective as that can be, they, they will be putting that to, to full use. So it's been a long time, right, since we've actually had a Democrat win a U.S. Senate race in South Carolina. How long are we actually talking there? Uh, so it would have been 1998. It would have been uh, Fritz Hollings' last election. And, you know, Fritz had served in the Senate uh, since the 60s. So, uh, you know, we have not had a new candidate, a new Democratic candidate win a, a Senate race in South Carolina since I haven't even thought about that. I'm, I get, It must have been when Fritz won his seat, um, which was 1966. Uh, it, it, it does not happen very often. If anything, it's probably it's potentially easier to do on the gubernatorial level um, because governors' races tend to be a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of running state government. You could you can make a more sort of technocratic argument for why you would be the best candidate. You know, it's l- a little bit less about sort of partisan wedge issues uh, than it is about who can run the state effectively. So Democrats tend to view those races as a little bit of a better opportunity for upsets. Senate races are tough because it's all the wedge issues. You're going to have to talk endlessly about uh, about abortion. You're going to have to talk about uh, you know immigration. All of the issues that really rile up 
uh, folks on both sides of the aisle, you know, depending on which side of the position of the issue you're on. That tends to make it a little harder for Democrats because the Republicans go back into their corner. And, and you know, just mathematically, there have been more Republicans in South Carolina over the last few decades than there have been Democrats. Um, but, you know, again, uh, this has been a historic race so far. And so uh, nothing is is out of the question. Fritz Hollings and uh, Jamie Harrison are pretty different kinds of Democrats, too, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, you know, that's an, a, a notable thing, not just Fritz, but, you know, a lot of the Democratic nominees for statewide offices in South Carolina over the last few years have been more in the Fritz model uh, in that they have their their strategy has been very much focused on picking off moderate Republicans has been to run, um, you know, relatively sort of inoffensive campaigns um, in in which they, you know, just to start off, they are like middle-aged white guys. They don't scare off right-wing voters. They are, you know, Vincent Shaheen was pro-life when he was running for governor. Uh, You know, James Smith ran, you know, he was pro-choice, but he still sort of was focusing on picking off Republican voters, historically Republican voters, Jamie Harrison has run, so far at least, a more unabashedly Democratic campaign. Uh, And it would be hard for him, frankly, not to do that because he is a Democratic Party official. He literally ran the South Carolina Democratic Party. You know, he may not be out there, you know, wearing a t-shirt that says Democrat across it, but he might as well. I mean, everyone knows you know, there's no disguising his party affiliation. Uh, and so, you know, we may see um, th- this may be a bit of a test as to which of those strategies is more effective, because there are a lot of Democrats in South Carolina who have, who have long argued, you know, that the path to winning is actually to, to mobilize, to inspire more turnout from from voters who might not show up, as opposed to trying to pick off, uh, you know, however many swing voters there are uh and and we're you know it's it's hard to say how many there really are out there uh so yeah no he is he is definitely a different model than fritz a different model than than james smith and vincent shaheen and um and uh you know it'll be interesting to to put that to the test in november one of the things i noticed in your in several of your stories is that at least from uh, Graham's campaign or supporters, there are a lot of references um, to a quote-unquote Hollywood elites supporting mm. Harrison's campaign. Um, mm-hmm. Do we have any evidence that there's a lot of out-of-state money coming into this or um, I, I guess any anything to to back that that, that keeps kind of yes. occurring? Yeah. There is. Um, however, it is fairly rich for either side to be talking about it um, because both of them are doing it uh, at huge proportions. Uh, last time I checked, and I haven't actually added this past quarter into this, but it, if it follows the trend, over 80% of both of their, uh, of their fundraising has come from out of state. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this is, you know, again, I was kind of comparing it earlier to the to the to the Beto O'Rourke Ted Cruz race in, in Texas back in 2018. And, and I've been comparing this race to that one from pretty much the day it got started. I always thought what it was going to do because of Lindsey Graham's 
uh, polarizing personality. His his national reputation was that it was going to inspire a huge amount of national interest in the race, and it has. Uh, and and it is true that Jamie Harrison has actually gone to uh, California and and actually attended fundraisers there. So that is also true. But you know, again, for 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 Lindsey Graham folks to talk about that, you know, I mean, Lindsey actually has a super PAC. Um, you know, so super PACs are not, uh, they cannot be coordinating with the campaign. So he does not run the super PAC, but super PACs are, you know, separate groups that can spend, uh, effectively unlimited amounts of money supporting a candidate. So there is a super PAC called security is strength PAC that supports Lindsey Graham. You know, they have basically like three donors and all of them are from California. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, they're spending millions of dollars. Uh, so, you know, yes, uh, there is a huge amount of out-of-state money uh, flowing into this on both sides. Uh, the differences between them have been fairly minimal. Uh, and I think it's uh, not surprising that oftentimes, actually, when you hear people talk about the Hollywood elites thing, it's not members of Graham's campaign. Oftentimes it's like supporters <laughs> um, and uh, they may not, you know, the, the, the campaign may at least be a little bit more uh, aware of the fact that they are both raising huge amounts of sums from out of the state. Let, let me ask you then, um, I, I know that I know you said you, you haven't done the math on the most recent numbers, but um, yeah, have you have you taken a look at if you if you exclude that 80 percent of yeah. uh, out of state? How, how does the in-state? contributions compare for the two candidates is it you mean in terms of geography or no i just mean like um is it still competitive if like is harrison able to outraise yes. because of out of state or is he um, also doing well in state again i'm not sure in terms of this most recent report right right the, right i mean i i have it up here it was literally jamie was raising 85 percent out of state and Lindsay was raising 83.5 so yeah. effectively, their numbers for in-state were uh, very similar. I see. You know, I see so yeah. Jamie's so, was fifteen percent, and, and yeah. Lindsay's was sixteen point five. So yes, it was basically you know if Lindsay was outraising Jamie overall, then it was the same in-state. And right. now that Jamie yeah, that, is raising that, yeah. more overall, and maybe that he is raising more in-state. Uh, and I do yeah. know what we did see in this one already is that Jamie had more donors like in terms of the number of donors we don't know how much each of them gave but he had more donors from south carolina um which is you know interesting and and yeah. does indicate that there is some uh at least some grassroots support there it seems to me right now one of the the big question marks is just what the voters in in south carolina are actually thinking like you said we don't we don't really right. have a poll um we don't have traditional campaign events going on right now where you have a lot of people in a room right. where you can, um, you know, go up and, and talk to them. Right. And I guess this also raises questions too about being a political reporter right now when <laughs> you don't have those kinds of uh, events where you typically can talk with voters. Um, I guess what, what's some of the difficulty around that? And I guess, do you agree? Is that, is that one of the questions right now is actually being able to tell what, voters are thinking yeah absolutely it's uh it's not fun <laughs> you know that the thing i like the most about my job is getting to to go to 
do not just campaign events, but just to, to travel the state. Doesn't even have to be political events and, and talk to South Carolinians about how they're feeling about, uh, you know, what's going on, not just in necessarily political races, but just to get a sense of, of the sentiment, uh, you know, in general. And yeah, we have not gotten to do that. I don't think we will get to do a, a ton of that over uh, the next few months. Uh, uh, so it has been a little bit more difficult to measure. All we have to go on basically is history. Uh, and And history has certainly indicated that Republicans have a pretty strong hold on uh, on South Carolina. Uh, you know, as we've pointed out, I mean, there are, there are signs that that some things are beginning to change, and that Joe Cunningham race is a clear example of it. Um, but you know, there have also been potential signs that other parts of the state are getting redder. I mean, Horry County has become very red uh, in the Trump years. Uh, you know, there are. Uh, parts of the upstate that, you know, have not changed at all, even though Greenville County has maybe gotten at least a, a shade bluer. Um, so, uh, you know, we know that it's very hard. Uh, we know that the math is difficult, but we also know that, you know, several Democratic candidates over the last few years are, you know, have gotten within reason, um, you know, we know that the James Smith lost by eight points in the in the governor's race in 2018. Uh, we know that uh, that the Vincent Shaheen back in 2010 lost by you know just what four percent to Nikki Haley. Um, uh, you know, these Senate races have not been as close, uh, but that's in at least in part because of the fact that most of the Democratic candidates for Senate in South Carolina. Uh, since Fritz Hollings, or at least since Inez Tenenbaum, uh, have been pretty weak. Uh, and so we haven't really, we, we don't have a, a much precedent for a situation like this, where we have a, an incredibly strong Democratic candidate, uh, at least fundamentally strong, you know, has the fundamentals down in terms of fundraising. So, uh, you know, it is going to be hard to measure over the next few months. You know, if I would not be surprised if pollsters do start paying a little bit more of attention to this race. You know, again, not to bring it up for, for one final time, but in in the Beto Cruz race in Texas in 2018, nobody was paying attention to it. I was actually covering it at the very beginning. I used to work in Texas. When Beto announced, nobody knew who he was. There was no interest in it at all. Once he started raising all that money, that was when pollsters started to say, okay, maybe we should take a look at this race. And then we started to see some polls that showed that it was actually a lot closer than we expected. So maybe we will see some of those folks come in here. Uh, and and if there are numbers that indicate that it's closer than we expected, then uh, I would not be surprised if if that fundraising uh, gets gets even bigger and uh, and our TVs will uh, truly be blanketed uh, in ads. Maybe even well, to a Tom Steyer level. <laughs> we'll see. On that, on that optimistic note, I think that's a, a good place to leave this, yes. this uh, discussion. Um, Jamie, one of the things we've been asking everybody on the, the show since, uh, since coronavirus started, um, we're all working from home, as are you. What, what's your work from home experience been? And do you, have any, do you have any tips for listeners out there who might be working from home themselves? What's keeping you sane? Well, I am fortunate in that I have two roommates, 
I live in a house here in Columbia with Joey Craney, who is uh, our colleague at the Post and Courier and a friend of ours. And uh, so that's been helpful because, you know, we I'm at least not entirely uh, alone and, and get to, to, you know, play video games with them uh, and uh, try to have some levity every now and then. We have two dogs. That's been pretty helpful uh, for, for the sanity as well. Um, but, you know, I basically spend a lot of time on the phone. During the workday, I spend a lot of time on the phone because I'm talking to sources. And then, you know, at night, I feel like I spend a lot of time on on Zoom calls, uh, keeping up with everybody. Uh, it's it's a it's a weird situation, uh, no doubt, especially for us as as reporters who are used to going out there and and uh, doing some some shoe leather work. Um, but uh, you know, just I, I think I am getting used to it at least a little bit over <laughs> uh, over the last few weeks. Yeah, and I know I am. I, I said I forgot who it was, but I, I said the other day, like I've I've gotten used to this to the extent that it's actually going to take me time to adjust back to, yeah, um, working in the office. When we... <laughs> Jamie, how can how can readers or listeners get in touch with you if if they want to or yeah, follow you? Um, so my Twitter handle is at js lovegrove, uh, and I will certainly be tweeting a lot about this race over the next few months. And my email uh, is jlovegrove, that's J-L-O-V-E-G-R-O-V-E, at postingcourier.com. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, joining us virtually today. I don't know if we explain that again. <laughs> We're still doing everything remotely. Um, but thanks so much for, for talking with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for this podcast, remember that you can find us on Twitter at UnderstandSC. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye, everyone. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later. Later.